0: Welcome to positive talk radio. Our goal is simple to explore
1: evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. So stay with us. And right now we present. And welcome to positive talk radio again, ladies and gentlemen, I hope everybody's well today. We've got a great show for you and we've got a great guy. that's going to talk about all kinds of things that I'm not really familiar with, but, and how he does all of it. Uh, um chris Sutton is with us and uh he's been on the show before last time and you can go to positive talk and you can uh get more information about the first show that we did together and we talked a great deal about his uh, automobile racing and and his horses and and where he was and in and the uh and where he lives in Canada and, and stuff like that. So uh, you can go look at that. But the, in this particular episode, I'd like to focus on what he does for a, you know, like a job and, uh, and, and he's the CEO of a,
0: a country. Is it, is it called Select Contracts? Yes. Yep. Yeah, CEO of Select Contracts. That's right.
1: Very good. How did you get that started? And how did you, when, what, what exactly is it?
0: So select contracts is a company that basically it designs, it builds and it operates any type of leisure adventure, recreation project around the world. So we work on cool things like surf parks, like downhill mountain bike parks, like sightseeing gondolas. We work in the ski resort realm, indoor skate parks. So anything kind of leisure adventure recreation focused. So the business has been around for 45 years. I've been working in it for the past twenty five years, and I bought it out completely in twenty sixteen so yeah it's a it's an amazing business to be a part of, and we've got a great team that work for us too
1: congratulations that that mm-hmm. must have been um a really unique adventure. I'd never heard of such a thing, but you know now that you th- think about it, somebody has to build all these cool places someplace in the world
0: yeah, exactly. And so we always start off with really in-depth marketing and feasibility studies so someone wants to build a project somewhere that's the first thing you do like is it going to be feasible so we we're we're pretty bankable so the banks know what we do the banks understand what we do the banks trust our numbers and so we'll do a market and feasibility study to make sure that that will work in a certain location and then that also tells you how many people might come through that facility Um, and then we do We come up with what components it should have. So if it's a surf park, what else should you have apart from surfing? Or if it's a bike park, what else should you have apart from biking? Just to attract the non-activity people. So F&B and zip lines and activity parks, like whatever might need to go into it. And then uh, put master plans together for it. And then we do all the financial business modeling. So again, been doing this for so long, we really understand the numbers. We understand how much it's going to cost to build. We understand how much it will cost to operate. We understand how much it can make in revenue. And then we'll put cash flows together to show potential clients or investors what that looks like. So that's the first piece. And then that's, that works really well. And then we go through the different design process. We've got architects that work for us that take projects through the design process, uh, and then into project management. So actually building these things and then setting up the operations later. Um, so yeah, it's a, we, we manage that entire process from A to Z.
1: That's a, that's pretty amazing. How do you know it's as an example. Let's say somebody inherits a chunk of land mm-hmm. um, and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this chunk of land. And, uh, but it'd be fun to do something fun with it. What's the process like? Do they contact you and say, I've got this chunk of land? How much, how much land do you need if it's a chunk of land to put it together a park?
0: Yeah, it depends what it's going to be in different sizes. So, you know, you can build an indoor skate park with an acre right? You could build an indoor skate park with parking and stuff with an acre. We actually own an indoor skate park in Australia called Rampfest. It's in Melbourne. Um, it's kind of the number one skate park, bike park in, uh, in Australia. And so we host all the national events there. And so that's the smallest facility. That's, that's an acre. All the way through to, you know, a couple of thousand acre adventure parks that have downhill mountain biking on the hillside with chairlifts linking it all together. And surf parks can kind of be done in maybe 10, 10 to 15 acres, something in that realm. So if someone, you're going back to your question, if someone was to inherit a piece of land, they will either have an idea of what they want to do with it. So they'll either approach us and say, hey, we want to build a surf park, for example. So that's great. They've got an idea, they've got a vision. So we can work on that and use that as the backbone for the market study. So it needs to be a surf park. How many surfers live close by? How many surfers live within an hour or two hours or six hours of this site? How many people do we think we get to come through this? And when we do the process that I talked to you about before. Other times, which is rarer, someone would say, hey, I have this piece of land. I want to do something with leisure or adventure or recreation. What should I do? And so then we go through the same process, but the market study will spit out what should that be. So it might be on a hillside, might be a downhill bike park. It might get snow in the winter. It could be a ski resort. It might be a flat piece of land with a great demographic for surfing. It could be a surf park. It could be a combination of all those things together, right? It might have hotels coming in. It might be residential coming into it as well, but all focusing around that that leisure and adventure piece.
1: Now, I'm assuming that you don't work with the hotels or do you work with the hotels if, if people want to um, build some uh, like a Wyndham or something next to the park?
0: Yeah, so at that stage, we can still look at the feasibility study of it. And then those big operators would come in to do the rest, right? They'd tell you how big they wanted the rooms and the design of the rooms and they maybe buy the land off the developer. Yeah, so the hotel piece, we'd kind of keep away from as much as possible. Definitely do the feasibility analysis of it up front, And then those big operators, if it needs to be a big operator, would look at those. If it's a smaller like lodging, like say you've got yurts or you've got geodesic domes or you've got cottages or like a small hotel over the clubhouse, that's fine to roll in but as soon as you start talking 100 rooms plus it's better to get on the operators to look after things like that
1: so if you decided you wanted to do that you'd need to look at the traffic flow and the road structures and and all the things around the the uh, land so that you can get an idea of of how many people it can go through there and and how much you have to charge and all that kind of stuff
0: yeah absolutely and so you know if the piece of land that you inherit is down some single track roads to get to it before you do much else before you really engage us you've got to talk to the city and see if they would give you permission to expand that road and would they pay for it would you pay for it because that's kind of a big question right if it's a few miles away from a highway and it's going to cost you 10 million dollars to get access that's going to be a pretty big hindrance before you even start the process so what can you build that can afford that kind of access so if you're building a disney 10 million dollars to get access that's easy it's no problem at all if you're building a surf park then you need to think about it and so there's certain things that we can help a client do some things the client would go and do themselves um, Other at times you take on a planner to help with some of that road stuff but you know when you take on an engineer to look at the the traffic flow and the, and the, the traffic studies coming past it so there's a lot that goes into a development and you know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. It isn't easy. And so there's a lots of different steps.
1: That's true. Up to and including, I'm willing to bet, the sewer system or lack thereof.
0: Yeah, totally. So again, if you're creating something near a city, that's great. Um, we've worked on a lot of projects that have a septic system. So you just have to get them pumped every month, right? And then it's a different search circumstance again. But in our market study that we're doing and the financial business plan that we're creating, part of that we're working out how much water we need we're working out how much electricity we need and then on the flip side after we've used the water what are we doing with it are we putting the water back into the sewer in which case the city needs to know what limit what capacity we'll be putting back in or do we put the gray water which is the stuff out the taps and the drains do we put that through a filtration process and use it to water the plants and the landscaping so all of those thoughts go into that upfront piece of work that we do
1: that's that's really is involved, I would think and and of course you're talking millions of dollars I would and do you do you ever have people come to you and say, "I got this land, I got no money, and I want you to build this thing for me uh what
0: would be, what would be your response we We get those quite a bit and and sometimes that's a visionary that talks to you, and that's awesome because they've got this passion, they've got this vision to do something, in which case you give them some guidance up front and then they go away and raise what we call seed money. So they've got to raise some seed money just to get these first steps to happen, whether it's paying us or talking to planners or going to the city or flights or like costs, right? You've got to have some money to do that. So if they've got the money to do that, that's awesome. If they don't have the money to do that, then they need to go and raise some money before they can make any project happen. And then other times you get people that are just, went out had a chat with some mates last night decide they want to build a surf park chat to me you find out it's going to cost 40 to 50 million dollars and that's the end of the conversation and they didn't do anything else <laughs> so Thanks. that's the spectrum
1: <laughs> Thanks, Chris. have a nice day work yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly Tell me Politely, about
0: you never know they might uh they might be those visionaries they might come back and follow it through but we have different levels of conversation, we're having levels of conversations with very sophisticated developers that have millions or even billions of dollars that want to do something like this all the way down to that visionary that wants to try and get something off the ground, but doesn't know how to. And so everyone's amazing in their own right. And super cool working with this variety of people all over the world. Like we've worked on over 300 projects in over 70 countries around the world. So it's pretty cool and great diversity and great to work with different people in different places.
1: Now, does that mean that you're traveling a lot?
0: You know what, before COVID, and so from maybe 1999 through till COVID, so that's that 21 years, I was on average on a flight every single week. So it was tough traveling globally. Um, 2016 and onwards, I kind of focused, because I was doing too much travel, it was too much. And so I then focused on like Europe, North America, New Zealand, Australia. And so they focused on my travel in those regions. And then since COVID, I'm really focusing on Canada and the US. And then I, I there's people that work with me and for me in other countries that manage those meetings and other places now.
1: Well, that's so, handy that's that you've got enough people to do that.
0: Yeah, no, it is. It is. I mean, it, it takes its toll. You don't realize it's taking its toll until something like COVID happens. And then all of a sudden, you can be at home for like two years. We couldn't even get out of the country. We couldn't even get out of Canada for well over a year. So which was just amazing being home and waking up in your own room every day and like appreciating we live on a ranch like we talked about last time just appreciating that and being around that so so that makes you realize a lot more and so I love the fact that I was grounded through that time and now I travel when I need to travel so I'm in Wyoming we're doing some a project for Jackson Hole so I'm in Wyoming in a couple of weeks time and then I'm down in San Diego for a conference the week after that and then I got to go to Scotland cuz I'm meeting the lady of the manor that's got this piece of land that we're going to look at and so um then I'm back for a few weeks so yeah I've got a bit of travel coming up but not nearly as much as I used to do
1: that's a, especially when you're traveling worldwide when you're on a 14 hour flight and then you've got meetings and all that kind of stuff it that, that wears you out and it's also hard for your home life
0: yeah totally but it's you know I, again you you go to these beautiful places and you see a lot of them doing what I do. Like you're in helicopters flying over sites because you can't get access to them and you're meeting governments and ministers and presidents and all sorts of stuff. Like it's pretty incredible what you do. So it's pretty, every trip was special. Definitely every trip was special. And then, um, but then sometimes like if I didn't have much time, I'd happily fly to New Zealand on a flight, have a meeting and then fly back on the next flight. Like literally be there for less than 24 hours just to go and have those meetings and come home. I would say that COVID actually helped me a lot in the fact that people are more willing to have Zoom calls and video calls now, whereas before they'd be like, can you come and meet? And I'm like, can we have a video call? Oh, no, we're just like, you know, can you just come down and meet us? Okay, great. I'll come. So now it's like video calls are completely accepted for 99% of the time. So a lot of my travels cut off now because I'm able to have video calls with people globally rather than having to fly there. So yeah, I prefer it this way.
1: Do you monitor how many miles you have?
0: No, try not to. <laughs> <laughs> I should I imagine a I'm well two million miles. I should think at this point in my life.
1: Oh, so you you're on the million mile club?
0: Yeah, I should think so. I should think so. Like I've again, some people have loyalty with one brand and work with only one airline, but that's very expensive sometimes. And so we're cost effect, cost conscious. Really, like all of our projects all of our clients are paying bills and paying for costs like that. So we're really conscious about that. So we're always trying to find the most cost effective way to get there. Not necessarily the cheapest because the cheapest means you've got like eight flights to get somewhere, but the most cost effective. So, you know, one or two most cost effective flights, which means I've got reward plans with so many different and with probably all the airlines actually. So yeah. And those have all gone away quite a lot in the last three years, right? Since I haven't been traveling too much.
1: Wow. Well, that's <laughs> so Tell me about what is a, you call it a surf park? What is that? I'm not familiar.
0: Yeah, so a surf park is basically building a giant lagoon, and you put a wave generation system in the back that creates between four and seven foot waves that you can actually surf on with a surfboard. So you catch the wave at the back of the pool, you surf the wave, and it ends up by the beach, and then you paddle back out the back. So it's exactly, well, contentious comment, but it's very similar to surfing in the ocean. Um, it's very similar. I, it's, it's almost better in some respects because the wave is the same every single time. So you can actually start to get muscle memory of popping up and surfing on the wave and doing tricks. You get a lot of muscle memory, which is really good. And then you take that to the ocean and you can perfect that trick on waves in the ocean because in the ocean, every single wave is different, breaks at a different time. The form's different. The size is different. The power is different. And so you're trying to learn all that whilst you're surfing on that new wave. Right. But in a surf park, you get to do all of that at the same time. But the best thing of surf parks is you can get beginners in there. So I mean, we do surveys all the time about the surf industry. And a lot of people, the biggest barrier to entry, this is crazy, but off a survey, the biggest barrier to entry of why people don't surf is because there are sharks in the ocean. And so can't get around that. If you're scared of sharks, then you're not gonna get in the water or people don't wanna get in the water. So creating a surf park definitely gets around that, you hope, (laughs) that you can surf in a surf pool, there's currents still in the circle, but not as much as the ocean. Um, and then people, you know, it's it's the barrier to entry. Where do I get a board from? Where do I get a wetsuit from? Who's good to, to go and give me, to teach me how to do this? And so when you're at a surf park, you've got instructors close by. You've got lifeguards all around. You haven't got many currents in the pool. no sharks in there. You've got wetsuits and, and surfboards and bodyboards and different types of surfboard that you can try. And you can come and develop. So it's all about progression, right? It's getting people in that have never been on a board before. And then with a surf park, after two or three months, they're ripping, man. They're doing really, really well in the surf pool if they come regularly and go through the programs that we put in place. So so a surf pool is like this giant lagoon with a big wave that breaks the back. You surf it all the way into the beach. And then you've got everything else around it. So you've got the beautiful beach that people can lie on. You've got the cabanas. You've got an F&B. You've got restaurants there. You've got bars there. You've got, you know, zip lines or skate parks or um, bike trails. Like you can have all sorts of activities around it. Um, and the idea is to capture the family, right? So we want people to get kids, get off your phones, get away from TVs, get off the sofa, get outside, do stuff, go and spend time with your family doing cool things. And a surf park ticks all those boxes. Same as a bike park, same as a ski resort. It's the same thing. But with a surf park, the difference between surf and skiing is when you go to a ski resort, if you don't ski, you're at the base of the mountain or you're on a gondola or you're at the sightseeing park, but you're skiing all over the place. With a surf park, you can bring your kids you can bring your grandparents and everyone can watch because you're right in front of the F&B so it's really it's great for families something like that's really great for families
1: well and it's it's also better than trying to take your whole family to the ocean totally. and uh especially with grandma and grandpa who may not be as ambulatory as they once were and so it's difficult for them to get down to the beach or whatever this you you can you can so you can quite literally then um stay the night in a motel or a hotel have breakfast the next morning walk down to the park hang out all day and play and then go back and have dinner and 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 cocktails or whatever you're going to do and it's all close by
0: yeah absolutely and then some projects would have lodging on site as well so um not every time but quite frequently there's some rooms maybe 20 30 40 something on site so you can actually capture the market for more than that time (laughs) And then we would work with Olympic teams around the world as well, and use that accommodation for the Olympic teams coming in to train. So um, we operated one outside of Dubai, a surf park there, um, built and operated that. And we had surf teams coming in and individuals from all over the world coming in. Um, Now, because it's an Olympic sport, now you're getting the Olympic team. So we started that process on a project we were operating in Texas for a year. And so that was great to be able to get the Olympic teams in to come and train. Um, And again, you're helping you're helping people get better at the sport, you know?
1: Exactly. Now, is this, is uh, are are our surf parks, a growing phenomenon? Is there more mm-hmm. of them in planning?
0: Yeah, there's a lot in planning. It's, it's the new, it's the new thing for sure. There's a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. There's a lot of people, you know, that might have that piece of land or might have that vision to do it. And so there are projects planned in many, many, many cities around the world. So there's probably like 10 or 12 open today around the world, maybe a bit more, but there's not too many. Um, But there's a lot in planning. And again, we go back to our earlier conversation. Some of those visionaries that don't know how to raise money. That might be a, a surf park that's in planning all the way through to, you know, we're working on this one project down in Thermal Beach, just south of Palm Desert that's amazing. And it's going to be a surf pool in a massive bigger lagoon that you can swim in and go paddle boarding on. And then the surf pool in one corner, and then they're selling residential around it. And it's just going to be a private surf pool for those residents that buy a property there. And so that's, and that's incredible, right? Like that's such a cool concept. Um, it'll be open for some private. So if you want to come and book the pool for an hour with your friends, you can, or come and book it for a day you can, but the premise is it's built for those residents so that they get that quiet private surf time that's there.
1: Now, because because you're talking about Olympic people and and as being an Olympic sport now, are you able to, in the um, with the wave pool, are you able to adjust the height of the wave?
0: Yes, so they're fully adjustable, fully flexible in what you can do. So you can have a crumbling whitewater wave for beginners and all the way through to a seven-foot-high barreling surf wave that you'd have for very advanced riders. And then some surf pools, some technologies can have all of those things going at the same time. Other ones have got, you know, one big type of wave at the back and then a small wave at the front. So generally you can have two groups in a surf pool. That's that's the normal.
1: So, so a large lagoon like that, how much water
0: does that take? It takes a lot of water to fill it up, but then it uses way less, like, maybe a third or a quarter of what a golf course would use to water a golf course. And so oh. you're just losing the evaporation. So you lose way less than a golf course would lose. So that everyone's like so much water, so much, you know, such a waste, but at the end of the day, there's so many golf courses out there. Like we're using a fraction of what a golf course would use. So yeah, it's pretty interesting like that.
1: That's, that, that is really interesting. And so that's, if you go ahead.
0: That was one of the things as well, going back to earlier conversations, like, can we get water to the site how much water is available so if you're in a drought ridden place like you know california i guess for the past few years where can we get this level of water from and that's one of those upfront conversational pieces you need which are pretty critical build a surf pool and there's not enough water to fill it then you've got a problem the beauty of it today is the treatment plants that you can use i mean there's some companies out there that can actually treat any type of sewage and turn it into drinking water which is scary but it's incredible what people are getting to with technology nowadays and then there's other plants that can turn salt water into fresh water using a reverse osmosis system. So there's lots of ways of thinking outside the box to fill these surf pools. And then you're just keeping up with evaporation and you're keeping up with the filtration. So you're running all the water through filtration every single day to keep it clean, fresh and also keep it clear. So when you are a lifeguard, you can see the bottom of the pool all the time, which is super important when you've got people surfing so you can check the safety.
1: Oh, exactly. Now, are they chlorinated, these yep. pools and stuff? Yeah, yep,
0: they are now. They started off not necessarily being chlorinated, but they've all transitioned to being chlorinated, and they will absolutely be chlorinated moving forward.
1: Yeah, because yep. kids pee in the pool.
0: They do. <laughs> yeah, they do. And it's just the bacteria and the germs that kind of, you get from the sun and algae and all sorts of stuff kind of happening so you you need that filtration system and so again there's a few companies out there that do the filtration systems for for bodies of water that big and there's different methods and different ways around it but that's definitely a conversation for another day because that gets very detailed
1: oh yeah yeah now if if somebody's listening and they have uh i don't know uh what what would the size that you would need to do a surf park would 20 acres or does it need to be more yeah
0: 20 acres would be plenty big enough so that would get you um you know medium-sized surf pool a few hotel a few lodging accommodation bits um it would get you some activities around it get the car parking get the back of house you know get the um the restaurant and the boardwalks and all that stuff overlooking it. So yeah, you could build a pretty amazing surf pool with 20 acres. Um, and then the cost though is the next thing. So the cost of that, you know, could anywhere be anywhere from 35 to $50 million or beyond. If you go to a giant size surf pool, it can be up to a hundred million dollars if you want to go to the biggest one. So it, again, your, our upfront work is determining what size of surf pool that market would need. And then, so you'd never build a church for Easter Sunday, right? So you're same thing with a surf pool. I'm not building a surf pool just to cater to August traffic. I'm building a surf pool to think about January, February, March, all the way through to December. And yes, the summer months are going to be full. So we try and push the bookings out into July and September and June and try, and try and do it that way. And so there's an optimum size on everything. And that's what we look at. Some people just want the biggest and the best. Great. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it's feasible or not. They just want the biggest and the best. Right. No problem. And other ones are like, well, you know, I can only raise $32 million. And then we'll look at that and look at the market and go, okay, yep, $32 million. Let's build a smaller one that's this size. And we could probably do one for cheaper than that. We could probably get something built for maybe 28 to 30 for something smaller. But, you know, the normal projects working on today are sort of 45 to $50 million. And that's a lot because of the construction costs as well. Like construction costs since COVID have gone up so much like construction costs have over doubled in some locations around the world. And so that's, what's pushing the price up a lot at the moment at the construction costs.
1: Well, if you're looking at it from the bank's perspective, if you're going to the bank to uh, get a size of a loan like that, what are the terms and how, how, how soon do they want their money back? And, and, and how are you, how does that get structured? Is it, do they structure like a 30 year loan?
0: Yeah, they, they might not go to 30. Um, so, A bank or debt providers, because there's lots of different people that provide debt now, not just banks, but debt providers are looking for security. So some kind of security. So they'll need to be in first position, which means if the business goes bankrupt, they get to be in control of what happens to that business. Um, They will then take all of their money and then everyone else kind of follows them with whatever's left. And so they're looking for security. So they won't touch anything until they've got security. So security comes in the form of the actual business itself. It could come in the form of the land. If that's you know, if the land's worth ten million, and you need an eight million dollar debt, that's fine. If the land's worth ten million and you need twenty million dollars of debt, then that helps for some of it. But you've got to provide some security for the rest. And so, what a lot of debt providers focus on nowadays is um, is the balance sheet. So the balance sheet of the person or the investor that's doing this, which goes back to earlier conversation again, right? So you've got your visionary doesn't have 50 grand to actually start this process off and it's got to go and borrow money. They're the developer of this. So then the banks and the debt providers later would go, well, let me see a balance sheet. Let me see what you're worth. Let me make sure that you can afford to pay this loan back if this business fails. And if they can't, then there's no loan. So then they've got to go and talk to their investors to see if their investors will take that on. And so that's, that is the biggest thing of why a lot of these projects don't necessarily move forward quickly because They don't have the balance sheets to move things forward. And so then it's finding someone else that's willing to use their balance sheet to be a part of the project. I imagine it would be
1: tough. Yeah. I imagine it'd be tough if you if you were to uh have to personally guarantee a hundred million
0: dollars. Totally. Yeah, and it might not be the whole thing, like it might not be all of it, but you've got to do a certain chunk. A bank's got to feel comfortable, right? You're not just gonna lend money to any guy off the street that you just meet. You need to know that they're on the hook for it. So basically, if this business fails how are you going to pay this loan? How are you going to continue paying this loan? Right? And you can't just say, well, if it goes bankrupt, you get the project. They're like, yeah, not a good enough answer. Like, (laughs) we want some security. Like, what's the security around this? And so, yeah, there's lots of different people that are are finding their way through this. We're working with a few different companies that provide that security, that don't provide the security, that, that provide the debt services to go out and find the debt. And they will help structure what that security looks like. So, yeah, that's the biggest thing right now.
1: Now, I know you've been doing this that. for 25 years, so it must be like the numbers that are rolling off of your tongue must be real easy. But for some, for a lot of us, it's like looking at financing of a $100 million thing or $50 million thing that's so out of our world. What is it like for you to be talking to these numbers? Because you're also talking to some really, really powerful people who have got these numbers to be able to throw around, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so they, you know, some of our high end developers have that money and they don't need any debt. They might take some debt on, but they don't need to. So that's like we talked about before that's the high end spectrum down to the people that are visionaries that don't have money. And so then it's down to them to find the money, right? It's down to them to present to investors and find someone that's willing to back them. Might be family members, might be some wealthy person locally that wants to see the community have something like this. And it's not just surf parks. We do a lot of stuff with downhill mountain bike parks as well. They're just as popular today. And then sightseeing gondolas as well. Those are coming out of the woodwork all over the place. Those are really successful because it's a great way to be outside with your family. And there's lots of activities to do and things to look at and great F&B. And so those are doing really well too. But all of those have the same, exactly the same funding issues.
1: Well, we were. if you go to uh, um, selectcontracts.com, and look at their portfolio you guys have done work all over the world and all kinds of different parks and different styles and different things how many how many people will work from your company will work on a particular project from beginning to end is it is it like each one has a piece that they uh, have an are expert in and and then it takes uh they'll finish up and then the next guy takes over that kind of thing
0: yes yeah, I'll kind of oversee every aspect of the business because I understand all the aspects of the business, so I would I would be oversight on all of it, not necessarily into the detail for sure, but detail on some components, I mean the financial side of it, I'm all over that, creating the business plans 90% of the time. Um so we have our business development team would oversee the first piece of the market study, the financial business plans, and then our design team would then oversee the master planning and any detailed design that we might be creating. And then then we've got like a development team that would then come back in and look after that during construction and then an operations team that looks after it afterwards. So the answer is no. The answer is nearly, but it's not quite. So it's not really one person all the way through, but it could just be a couple. It could be two or three people that handle it through its different phases of its project. And then I'm oversight through the whole thing because again, I've done all aspects of what we've talked about.
1: so when you have somebody that is working on a particular project do they have to move there and live there through the course of the developing that project for that period of time if so two phases
0: would need someone there so the construction manager on site so if we are asked to be a construction manager on site and not we're not necessarily asked every time because again there's construction managers in each country around the world right there are lots of construction managers out there and they will likely know so if you ask me to go and build a project in venezuela you know, it's better to find someone locally that can construction manage that. So us sending someone from here, like we don't know anybody, we don't know the language, we don't know anybody. So it makes it more difficult, we could help coordinate it. But so in answer to your question, if we're project managing construction, managing a project, yes, we would send one or two people to live there full time through that process. Um, And then the other phase is the pre opening management. So you know, six to 12 months before a project opens, we need to have someone on the ground doing all the pre-opening management. So doing the staff recruiting and drawing the job descriptions and actually interviewing the staff and putting the point of sales system in place and putting all the marketing together. And like, there's so much that goes into that pre-opening that needs someone on the ground as well. So minimum six months on the ground. And that's the most likely candidate is finding that person to go and be on the ground. And then once it opens, if we're asked to operate it after it opens, then obviously we need a general manager on the ground. So the person that goes down as a pre-opening manager, that likely would be the person that stays on to become the general manager. So it might be that we find someone local to fill that role, but then they don't have experience working with us and don't know our processes. So generally we'll send someone down to be that pre-opening manager or ongoing operations manager. And then we would employ an ops manager as like their number two. And so when our GM has finished, what they do, and the ops manager is up to speed, the ops manager can then become the GM. So that's, again, we're trying to promote local economy as much as possible. So, you know, 99.9% of people are employed locally in every project we go to. Construction companies are all local. We try and use as many consultants as possible who are local. Again, it's it's economic stimulus into the regions we go and work in. So we're looking at a project in Panama right now, and he, he wants his architectural firm in Panama City to do the architectural work. That's great. So we'll do the schematic design we'll do all the layouts and we'll pass it on to them and then they'll do all the detail design and construction drawings for, for building it and we will be in the weekly meetings and we'll pick up on any mistakes that might come through so they'll learn from it as well which is great it's great it's all education and, and teaching people and helping people
1: boy i tell you years ago i was uh, when uh the restaurant chain denny's was a thing mm-hmm. they're kind of they're not a thing anymore but um I was on the opening team and in a very small way I get an idea of what it's like to do the pre-opening of a facility like that. Cause you do everything. You have to hire you have to clean the place, you have to hire the people, you've got to stock the shelves, you've got to do all of that and have the expertise to do that. That must take a while for people that you're working with to get to that level of expertise.
0: Absolutely. It is really tough. And honestly, I find the ones that have the most most attention to detail are the likes of F&B managers because generally their attention to detail is off the charts, right? And so I, we work with a lot of people that have been F&B managers in the past and then we train them in new processes to bring in surfing or skiing or biking or something, right? So it's yeah, finding that person this. that we can trust on the ground to manage budgets and and manage the process and be leaders, like be leaders and, and lead those that team that's down there
1: and that is f and b you're right f and b people are used to doing that they they lead people and they're used to the numbers and the numbers of how to to make the thing work and and uh so that because you, you, if you're not careful can't you go like bust like really fast <laughs> opening up of something of that that length and and width
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's again, when we create our business plans so going back to that first phase where, you know, if you're going out to look for debt in certain countries, sometimes they want to see a five-year buildup. So you predict the revenues for year five, and then every year before that, you reduce it down. So it might be in year one, you're looking to get 50% of what you're planning to get in year five and then stepping up to year five to make it work. Generally, that's a three-year buildup, but some like in New Zealand, debt down there, they'd love to have five years. So five-year buildup to get that debt. And so you're creating the business plan based around that. So you know, going into it where you've got to be super careful. And again, it's the marketing team. It's getting people through there. It's making sure that the market likes the the ticket price that you've got, and that's not gonna stop people coming through. And so, yeah, if you don't do it properly, parks don't last a year right and they're having to find more money after they've built this thing they're now having to find more money to cover off any deficits and then how long do you keep pouring that money down that hole until it turns around and so sometimes then people call us in and go okay we actually do need you and we'll come and help them turn it around um but it's it's obviously much better for us to do the business plan us to get it open us operate it for the first two years we like the first two years is the sweet spot the first year you're in building up and you're getting it well known and you're going through staff because obviously you'll take staff on when you open but they're not all 100%. You're meeting them a couple of times and you're bringing them into a team. And so you'll move staff around and you'll kind of get through that in the year. And then the second year, you get those staff into the groove. So we try and do a minimum two years. Um, but sometimes, you know, people are like, can you just come and help me out for six months or a year? And it's fine. Like we will, we'll make a massive dent. But two years is good.
1: What's well, amazing to me because if there are people that believe that they're going to do this and they don't have the experience of every aspect of it and they try and put it together and they can't, uh, and then, then that's a problem. So, it, to me, to, to my way of thinking, it would make much more sense to hire a professional that does this for a living, mm-hmm. who, who can has already tackled all of those slings and arrows that that may befall you, so that they already you already know what's coming.
0: Most of the absolutely, time. yeah, that makes the most sense. Um, you know, and some clients try and do them to themselves, and like I said, then they'll come back to us later and say, "Oh, yeah, we would like you to come and give us a hand now," and that's totally cool. Totally fine. Everyone's got to find their way, right? And so it's good for some people to make mistakes and then and then we'll jump in and, and help them train to bring them through that. By the way, how hot is it where you are? It's boiling hot at the moment. <laughs> my door's open. I do apologize. <laughs> no, 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 no. I... It's an overcast day and it was like, oh, the car will be fine because so it was raining this morning, but it's probably still 25 Celsius outside, so it's still pretty warm. <clears throat>
1: It's still pretty warm. I, I'm. I. am i will wrap this up so that you don't, you know, like die of heat stroke. Uh,
0: that's fine. We're all good. I but, lived in Dubai uh, for ten years, so I'm used to the heat.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> that must be. That must have been interesting. But uh, we've been talking with uh, Chris Sutton now. Chris, um, tell people how to contact you, how they can best work with you, and and all of
0: that. So I think the best thing is to look on the website. All the details are on there. It's select contracts dot com um that's the best way to contact us and then that's got email addresses on there it's got phone numbers on there it's got links to our facebook and instagram pages as well so people can kind of trawl through that and see what's going on with with what we do so yeah selectcontracts.com
1: you do a lot of a lot of stuff it's like so if you want to open up a a bike resort or a surf park or um you did cannonball what is cannonball
0: so Cannonball is awesome. So we're working with a, a First Nations tribe in in um, North Dakota right now, and there's is the town of Cannonball, and so we are helping that tribe bring biking to the community. And so we're 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 working on a pump track, working on a BMX track, and then there's an old rail line there with loads of history behind it, which is now disused. And so we're trying to turn that into a mountain bike track as well. So people in North and South Dakota will be able to come here, and it's kind of a it's kind of an interpretive biking experience so you can bike and just go and ride or you can ride and then stop and learn about the area and learn about the history of what's happened there and um the famous spots nearby and then we've got the the, the pump tracks and the, and the bmx tracks going in there too so that's a project we're right in the middle of that's um it's actually went for a board meeting yesterday to see if they've actually got that financing ready to move forward so i should know about that in the next couple of days but again it's all back to the same thing it's trying to get people healthy and happy right it's getting people outside on mountain bikes instead of them playing on video games inside um so that's a big part of that
1: you know one of the biggest the coolest thing is is uh because you mentioned jackson jackson hole and mm-hmm. i've been there it's a beautiful area but if, mm-hmm. it's if incredible. you put up a a a gondola uh, thing that you could that you could go and look at some of the sites that would be really really cool and that's for the whole family
0: totally and so we're doing quite a few of those right now um a couple in canada we're working on a couple in uh, new zealand that we're working on one in the uk that we're working on and so you can go there you can climb into a gondola or a chairlift and again that's another big thing so people that don't ski very rarely have been in chairlifts and gondolas and so that's an attraction by itself so you charge them a ticket to do sightseeing but they just want to go and ride that go to the top have a coffee come back down but we put bike, hiking trails, we'll put biking trails, we might put zip lines into projects like that, um, aerial ropes courses. Um, we'll look at interpretive signage at the top so you can kind of do a hike and learn all about it. And that's all going back to QR codes as well. So we design all this ourselves so you can read the sign and learn about that marmot that's an animal at the top of the mountain. And if you want to know more, you can scan, again, using your phone, unfortunately, but you can scan a QR code. And the QR code can bring up on your phone and it can have a video and showing you more about that species or that animal or that mountain or that history or that First Nations band or whatever it might be. Um, So you can learn more about it. So we we bring that interpretive side to the table, too. So we've done that at Jackson Hole recently, actually. So that's that's all being installed right now. That'll be open for next summer. And then we're doing it for quite a few other ski resorts in the region, too, in the U.S.
1: With the technology, the way it's improved and what you can do with the, the codes and with the, the internet and stuff, it can be a real interactive experience.
0: Yeah, it can. And when we first came up with it, it was like, no, don't want anyone to be on their phones, <laughs> but you're not going to fight it. Like we might as well embrace it somewhere. And this is an educational piece of it. So yes, people are outside. They get the lift up. They see the views. They hike. It's great exercise. It's getting them healthy and they're eating great farm to table food and healthy food and they're learning about a region. And then if they need to get their phone out to learn more about the region and scan that QR code and read it or watch a video, you know what? We'll accept that.
1: <laughs> that's that's modern technology at its finest.
0: Yeah, and the same with e-bikes as well, right? Like mountain biking is this incredible sport that's become massive and e-bikes are out there now. And a lot of people out there, the purists are like e-bikes. We shouldn't have e-bikes, it's cheating. But e-bikes has got this whole new demographic of people that didn't really like riding up a hill out on e-bikes because the e-bike helps you you're still cycling you're still sweating you're still working hard but you're working at a fraction of using a fraction of the energy and so having e-bikes is fantastic i went to do a site visit in scotland um i don't know four five six years ago five years ago and they were relatively new back then and so um we were doing this site visit. And so they were like, we've actually rented e-bikes so that we can see these three mountains and you can choose which one we should do the downhill mountain bike park on. I was like, okay, that's great, awesome. So we cycled up this one trail and there were these cyclists on regular bikes in front of us. And I fly past this one guy and I look across at him. And first of all, you see amazement in his eyes that someone can go faster than him up this hill. (laughs) The second thing in his eyes is respect because not only the surprise you've gone past them, but the serious respect that you can cycle that quickly up a hill. And then they realized it was an e-bike and then it was disgust that went through their eyes. (laughs) But since then, so many more people have got it and you've got to to embrace it. And so again, that Cannonball project, there's a hillside there. And so the next step would be maybe building an e-bike park there. So you can ride up on your e-bike and then ride down bike trails to save having to build a chairlift or a gondola to the top or save having to use a van To drive to the top, right? So again, more environmentally friendly and awesome. We've got a project in Scotland as well that's going to be using a lot of e-bikes and e-vehicles taking people to the top. So we're embracing that technology too.
1: No, an e-bike. That's an electric bike. Yes.
0: Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. How fast can they go? Uh they can go pretty quickly, like 40, 50 kilometers an hour, I think. Like really? Yeah. I mean, I've I only ever I've used one a couple of times and I use it on the hillside. So I'm cycling up using the the uh the battery help it helps you get to the top and then coming down like generally you turn it off right you're turning it off and you're just riding gravity is bringing you back down the bikes are a lot heavier they're making them lighter and lighter every single year so the bikes are a lot heavier so you just need to know that when you're coming downhill because you're carrying more speed because they're heavier and then once you get moving you're going a lot quicker and it's a heavier bike to turn into corners but you learn and they're making them lighter and lighter and lighter like that technology is incredible how that's how fast that's expanding
1: it would be a lot of fun to be able to go up a hill without killing yourself.
0: Totally. And that's a lot of people are doing it. And so, you know, husband and wife, one of them might be a biker, the other one might not be back five, six years ago, only one person would go for a mountain bike ride, then come home to their spouse. Now if the other person doesn't like riding up the hills, they can. So they've got an e-bike and they're going out and riding together. And the person with an e-bike is getting to the top quicker. Um, I go, I've got a buddy, um, who didn't really like mountain biking. He dirt biked. and he was kind of okay on a mountain bike, but he didn't like climbing and he bought an e-bike and all of a sudden we're starting to ride together. So, you know, he's way quicker than me on the climb and I'm way quicker on the downhill. So you don't get to talk if you've got a regular bike and an e-bike, like it's hard to have a conversation when you're climbing up the hills, but, um, it works out. It works out. It's just getting more people into the sport. And again, like we talked about before progression, right? Building a surf park to get surfers to get, people have never surfed before into the water. Same with e-bikes, it serves an amazing purpose. And also like, if you wanna go and do what would take you six or eight hours to do a massive tour of a mountain range on your regular bike, you can go and do that in two hours. Again, more people are able to jump on an e-bike and go and do it quickly because all of us are struggling for time, right? We're all struggling for time. So trying to find eight hours to go out and do that, it's rare, but if you can do that on an e-bike in two hours and you get to experience that beauty of the top of a mountain, amazing, awesome get outside go and do stuff and so um yeah it's it's awesome and then we're set up we're setting up a foundation right now actually we just set it up and that's going to be helping um underprivileged kids in regions all over the world where we do projects it's going to be putting money into a into a fund to be able to help underprivileged kids get into action sports and get healthier and help with mental health physical health so that's another conversation another time as we develop this but um We're running one project right now. We're actually going to develop it all as a not-for-profit. So all of the profit coming out of that one project will go into the local community to help underprivileged kids and help people progress. So not only that, but also like if you are doing really well and you want to go and compete, but you can't quite afford to go and compete for the first few races, we might try and help fund some of those initial initial visits for the initial competitions for people. And so... We're working through that at the moment, and that's so much fun because we want to give back to the community. We want more people doing this. We want more people to be healthy. We want more people on surfboards and bikes and skis and skateboards. And so we're doing this to help give back and get more people out there. So money shouldn't be a barrier for people. So we're trying to combat that right now.
1: It seems to me like there's there are people that have have got money, that this is a great way of giving back. Not only can you take the profits and you can pour it back into the community, but you can also can do a community thing that becomes part of the community and everybody can can get together and profit from it.
0: Absolutely, and I see so many people that try and raise money for not-for-profits and charities to do similar stuff to us, maybe not in the action sports world, but similar stuff to us, but you're always having to do fundraisers. So it yeah. takes up so much time to grant do fundraisers and raise that money and you're trying to get these donations. So our approach is let's raise money once, let's build a project with it so that that project gets built and then all of the profit goes to do not-for-profit purposes, goes for charitable purposes, right? And so it's perpetual. You only have to raise money once and you've got a revenue stream. So at the end of the year, it's like, right, we've got $250,000 this year. What should we do for the year? And that's your budget for the year. And the end of the next year, you might have 150 or 350, but that's your budget for the next year to do it. And so it gives you this perpetual not-for-profit basically. And that's what I've been striving towards for so many years. It's great to actually start, we're able to get, we've got the the foundation set up, we've got the bank account set up, and now we're just working out, we're working on the story and how to apply. And you know, there's lots of stuff that's got to go into that. So we're working through that right now. But um, yeah, it's specifically for this one project that we've got. It was going to be a for-profit, and um, I decided that I just wanted us to do it as a not-for-profit for this one, and then see where it goes from there. Like, hopefully, we can do lots of them, but let's use this as a test pilot and see where it goes.
1: I wish you uh, lo- lo- tons of success with that, because that's, mm-hmm. I think Thank that you. can that can be a really cool going-forward business model. You cover all your expenses, but then any profits that you that you have after your expenses are covered, then then that goes back to the community.
0: And- Absolutely, and it, and it literally is the community. So it's like wherever that city is, that's where the money gets spent. Right. And so the more projects we have in the more cities, the the bigger this can grow globally. And so, yeah, that's super exciting. So we've got, um, can't mention any names yet, but we've got a couple of athletes that are super keen to be involved with that and, and bring their names to it just to help with that. Right. Because it's going to be a collective effort to raise that money once. And so they want to be involved in giving back like there's a biker that wants to get involved in giving bike and getting more people on bikes. There's a surfer that wants to get involved that surfs and wants to get more people on surfboards. So it's getting those athletes to come through and help with this process as well. And that's super exciting because they're sharing their knowledge and sharing their vision and and sharing with how they did what they did with the younger generation of today and, and sharing that passion and helping other people be successful in these sports. So uh anyway, again, we digress. There's lots to talk about. We probably need another twenty of these to get through everything.
1: <laughs> we we <laughs> probably do uh, because you know, um do you know who Matthew Stafford is? No, he's a quarterback for the. Um, um, uh, yeah, see, I was grow-
0: I was brought up in the UK, so any any anything anyway, like that, I'm, I'm football, not knowledgeable.
1: Know. <clears throat> and, but he was he was saying his wife has a podcast, and he was saying he's 35 years old, and he was saying that. Um, he doesn't connect with the kids on his own team because a lot of them are in their uh, early to mid twenties. Mm-hmm. he says It used to be that we'd, you know, go in the clubhouse after practice and we'd play cards and we do, and we stop and we hang out together and we talk, nobody talks. Everybody's just on their phone. And, and yeah. so getting people away from that and into more uh, social activities and that can be good physically and mentally would be really a good idea. And I'm thank you for working on it.
0: No, that's cool. It's funny. I've got another story. If I'm allowed to keep talking, we've, um,
1: of course, obviously
0: we've talked about, I'm a rally driver. So I race all over the Canada and the U S and, um, there's another rally driver I know really well that actually coaches people. And, um, the other day he had a 14 year old that was like, can I come and get taught how to drive rally cars? And he was like, yeah, that's totally fine. So they're driving in private land. No problem with being 14, driving a car. This 14-year-old gets in. They have to have a couple of cushions to go underneath them to be able to see over the steering wheel. (laughs) And this kid starts the car and starts driving this thing, sliding the corners and being amazing behind the wheel. And my buddy who's the coach was like, you're really good for your age. Like, how many years have you been driving for? And he looks at him and went, it's the first time I've ever driven a car. And he was like, what? What? And he goes, I drive simulators. I drive simulators. And I've learned how to drive driving a simulator. And this kid was amazing. So, yeah, it's super funny. So, yeah, there's some positives and some negatives, I think, to the technology side. This was a really interesting one that I'd never even contemplated before. But he'd never driven a car, and he was driving this thing, like, very professionally through these back roads. So, yeah, super interesting.
1: Well, and that, that just goes to show you that the simulator was actually uh, true to form.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, very good yeah i mean look at the formula one races i'm massively into formula one as well like so i could talk to you another few hours on that but um every single racer is on the simulator whenever they have a spare second they're on the simulator developing their car learning the track that they're about to go and race at and they're on the simulators all the time because it simulates so well so so well it takes that so you learn the track so before you get to monza which is on the races on sunday this week so qualifying free practice of tomorrow qualifying is on saturday They've been driving Monza all week on the simulators. So when they get in their car, they've got the track memorized. They've got which gear they need to be in in which corner, where it might be slippery, where it might be off camber. They've they've got all that in their head before they even go onto the tracks. So they've got that muscle memory before they even put tires on the tarmac.
1: And it's cheaper because you're not gonna you're not gonna break the uh, the simulator. And if you do, it's it you don't have to worry about going to the hospital.
0: Yeah, it's pretty impressive if you manage to break the simulator, but yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah well young man we i need to have you back because you you're you're really engaging and you know so much about so many things um i'd love to
0: yeah i'd love to i i i enjoy talking to you so yeah anytime you want happy to talk about rally driving happy to talk about the businesses or formula one or giving back to the community and getting more people out on bikes and surfboards yeah happy to chat further
1: I would would love to do that, and and at this point, I want you to you're probably sweating to death. I want you to get out of your car or your <laughs> truck, and and to and to take care of yourself. Last again, we've been talking with uh, Chris Sutton, and uh, tell us how to get a hold of you. If somebody's got a billion dollars that they want to give you to build a park, how do they get a hold of you?
0: Yeah, it doesn't need to be a billion dollars. It can be it can be anything. they just got to bring a vision and a dream to the table. Um, so best things to come through our website, which is selectcontracts.com. Uh, my email address is chris at selectcontracts.com. And then we've got all the contact details on there. So pretty easy to get hold of us. Wow.
1: You're, you're, and you're a really cool dude, as they say. And I, I really appreciate having you on the show. It's, it's awesome. So, yeah. And wonderful. I think this is one of those things that people will learn from because it ain't every you day you're in an industry that doesn't, that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, there aren't very many companies like yours.
0: No, that's right. There's not many of us out there at all. So, yeah, I mean, we've got the beauty of being in this industry, the business of for 45 years, right? So it's it's we've been there. We've done it. We've seen what's needed to be done to get things open. So we've got that experience that we can bring to the table, and that's super important.
1: Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And by the way, don't do it yourself. Hire a professional. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you'll waste a lot less money than you might think.
0: Mm-hmm. This is true. This is true
1: do you, do you I, right before we go do you ever tell that to somebody to say when he says no no nope i know what i'm doing oh, we're gonna do this and and we're gonna and did you ever stop him and say are you, you know sure
0: what? yeah i don't it's better to let people do that like you explain what you do and how you can help if they think they can do it themselves that's amazing They 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 could quite well go off and be amazing at it they might be able to manage it but what i do say is I'm like, that's awesome, I'm always here to help you if you ever need any help, more than happy to answer the phone or reply to emails or catch up for a coffee or food or whatever and if you ever need help in the future, we're always here to help you and I leave it like that and quite often, they'll call me in a couple of years which is nice and we just keep the doors open all the time, right? I mean, we're super nice, we're happy to chat as you can see so yeah, it's it's nice just to to build that portfolio up and and have people around the world that you know and trust and get on with and, and work together with at some stage so yeah, it works
1: exactly again chris Sutton and the company is selectcontracts.com go build a park for somebody and it would be and you know um being a uh humanitarian and an entrepreneur you can do something for um for the good of the community and and uh, uh bring people together and fund the community as well so i, I yeah. love that yeah I, absolutely that's a, that's a great idea um, so thank you sir and if you wait right there I'll be right back Cool thank you so much hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end please give us a like and subscribe to this channel this has been a production of positivetalkradio.net please visit our website oddly named positivetalkradio.net for more details about us and our mission which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's